That's a very difficult thought for a grandpa, release and dismiss the children. We who are grandparents would, I think, rather them be with us, but they enjoy themselves. Well, welcome everyone. Good to see you this morning. My name is Peter Davidson, one of the pastors here at Lakeview Christian Center. For those of you who did not expect to see me last week when I said that Gene and I would not be here, we lied. <laughs> we were trying to create a context that if the man's out of town, we can go to church without any fear of recrimination. It didn't work, did it? Here we are. Just some scheduling conflicts and whatever, and so uh, I'll be speaking this morning. You may be opening your Bible to Exodus chapter 11, and then Keith will be following next week in Exodus chapter 12. Okay, brothers, are we on that machine up there? You got it? For those of you who have been praying for Keith and Gina and their kids and their family, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a, a whirlwind season for them, and it still continues. The wind isn't finished. But in spite of the fact that this is a whirlwind season, they know that God will win the day. But it's difficult going through these things. Can everybody attest that when you're in a difficulty, we know God's going to win the day, but it isn't easy. It isn't easy. So continue to pray for them. Continue to pray for the exoneration of the gospel in them so that we and they together can see what we already know, but see it again, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we're continuing in Exodus. And this morning, as we get into chapter 11 which is a rather short chapter. It's more of an introduction to chapter 12. We're going to see Moses announcing the 10th plague. This plague that is going to cause the Pharaoh, this evil, wicked, tyrannical ruler over God's people, this ruler who has captured God's people, and they are enslaved to his will. Finally, God is going to move in such a way that he will irrevocably break Pharaoh's rule over his people. Remember last week, Jason explained the first nine plagues, and he explained that they were designed to free Israel, but in each one, Pharaoh still refused. He's obstinate. He's a difficult ruler. He's not easily dissuaded. In fact, he cannot be dissuaded at all except by one greater man. And this is the one that we face on a regular and daily basis. This evil ruler over this world. And so after the ninth plague, 
Now the Lord is ready to carry out the promise that he had made to Pharaoh in chapter 4, verse 23. Remember, he had Moses go to Pharaoh, and right off the bat, he's going to tell Pharaoh his purpose. God is going to tell Pharaoh, this is what is going to happen. Why? How can God do that? Well, some will say, and it is true, there's an element of truth in it, that God can say this because he knows the future. Correct? And aren't we glad God knows the future? But that's not more basically the reason why God can say what is going to happen. The reason God can say what is going to happen, the reason God can prophesy truthfully and correctly and accurately every time is that he decrees what will happen. It is his will that this will happen. Therefore, he knows it ahead of time that it will happen. And here's what he tells Pharaoh. He says, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse, knowing that he will refuse... If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Wow. That's the God of love. That's the God of the gospel. That's the God of grace. That's God. Never assign the Old Testament revelation of God to a lower or different place than the New Testament revelation of God. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. I do not change. Who God was in the Old Testament, he is in the New and he continues to be that way. Therefore, his name is I Am. And so, I'm going to kill your firstborn. And you see, in this plague, Pharaoh's resistance is going to finally be broken. And the people will be released from their slavery. Therefore, you see, Moses, the Lord sends Moses to warn Pharaoh one more time. Tell him one more time what's going to happen. But, so let's read chapter 11 to see what Moses is instructed to tell Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. See, the Lord's going to pay the folks, the Israelites, all the back wages of 400 plus years. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, remember Yahweh, the God of Israel, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of a slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. 
There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall bark against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these servants of yours shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from the Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. One more time, I'm going to tell you, one more time, this is the plague that I'm sending. I'm not sending any more flies and frogs and darkness and hail. We're not doing that kind of thing. This time, Pharaoh, I'm going to touch you. And Pharaoh still says, they ain't going nowhere. So let's see what the Lord does. Father, Father, cause our hearts to know for sure that this account in Exodus is history. But Father, it's more than just an account of a people coming out from slavery. It is the way that you free your people from their bondage to sin and Satan. Father, this morning we ask by your Spirit's revelation that you will be showing us something far greater than just a confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Father, that you will show us the ultimate confrontation, the confrontation between your son and that wicked ruler of this world. Father, give us insight, give us understanding, encourage, strengthen, and embolden us to walk obediently in this world and to face anything and everything that the enemy has to offer, but to face it within the context. We are the people of your victory because of the cross and because of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. This is extreme. And the question might be asked, okay, the first nine plagues, man, you made us uncomfortable, it was difficult, we had some problems, but we got through them. But you see, this plague is radically different. It is the plague of death, the most extreme punishment, the most extreme event that any of us can imagine and can experience. And so the question should be, why such an extreme, radical, but very necessary plague? Why? I mean, is there no other way that God could do this 
Was there any other choice that God had to release Israel from his bondage? Was there any other way? What is the answer? No. Because you see, God is not decreeing, well, I'll take one from about five different ways that I can do this. There is only one way. Jesus said, I am the way. There's always only one way, and it is the way that God does his work. There is no other alternative or way. This had to happen in order for Israel to be released from his captivity to sin and slavery under Pharaoh. You see, the problem was radical. The enslavement of God's people was a radical problem, and therefore it required the most radical solution. You see, Israel's real problem was not just a social adjustment. God wasn't looking to make their place in the world better to give them some cushion, some more naturally better circumstances. He wasn't just emphasizing, well, you see, this means that God is against certain cultural activities and he's for that. It has nothing to do with those essentially. The real problem here was not that Israel needed a social adjustment, but that their eternal salvation, their destiny required death. God was dealing with the most fundamental need that Israel had in this 10th plague. It wasn't about the issues of this world. This 10th plague certainly did deal with the issues of this world, but it dealt with the issues of this world by first dealing with the most fundamental and most radical and needful issue of all, and that is the issue of Israel or God's people in eternity, in the world to come. Because what happens in this world, whatever we're involved with, what is ever happening in our life, be assured, every one of us, that one day, should Jesus tarry, every issue that is going on in my life will come to an end. But the real issue is not what I'm facing and experiencing here. What is the real issue of life? What's going to happen when I draw my last breath or when Jesus returns if we're still here? That's the real issue of life. You see, someone had to pay the penalty of death. Death had to occur if Israel and if we are going to experience freedom from Satan's tyranny. Why? Why? Because God, who is life, remember in 1 John, I'm sorry, John 5, 26, God is life. He has life in himself. God is the God of all life. And he created Adam in his image for the purpose of reflecting the very life that God is. Remember in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And that requires certain fundamental revelations, among which, and probably primary of all, 
is that God is life. God is life. Now, what is the opposite of life? What is it the opposite of life? Death. The opposite of life is death. You see, life and death were never meant to cohabitate in God's universe. That was never the issue with God. The God who is life in himself does not create death as a companion to be with him and to function in his universe. Something has happened. But you see, Adam's ability to reflect God's life, his ability to be dependent upon God's life and functioning in that life was a consequence of Adam walking obediently to and in and with that life. So Adam certainly was given life. Eve was certainly given life. But you remember in Genesis 2.17, the Lord said, look, you see those two trees over there? That particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, do not eat of that tree. Why? Because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Because you see, for us to be walking with God, to be reflectors of his life, we are to be obedient to that life and to be obedient to the ways of that life. And so any disobedience on Adam's part would have what? Resulted in Adam rejecting life. And as a consequence, death was the result. In the day that you disobey, in the day that you do not walk in my life and walk according to my life and walk with my life, in the day that you do anything Anything contrary to me, to my life, anything, even one time, one moment of time, the moment anything comes in that is antithetical to who I am in myself, death is the irrevocable and forever result. Now that should sober us. One man, one time, One act of obedient, disobedience. Just one act of disobedience. Just one little bite. Just a little bite. Just a little taste. And just that little taste brought death into the world. Because you see, even that smallest of taste was a monumental and eternal rejection of the life that was in Adam. You see, sin is the most serious thing that we do. So God said, in the day that you disobey, what? You're going to surely die. Is there anyone in this room today who has never disobeyed God? Anyone at all who you've never disobeyed God, never have? So we're unanimous. All of us have what? Sin and fall short of the glory of God. Anyone in all, you're here and you've never disobeyed God. Never once. The day that you eat of that disobedience... 
you will die. So that, you see, is the sentence that is upon every single one of us. And so there's a problem, isn't there? There's a real problem here. So this is what happened. Remember what Ezekiel 18, 4, the soul that sins shall die. Paul repeats some of these same kinds of things in Romans 6, 23. He said the wages, the payment, the penalty of sin is what? Death. And you see, this death is not just a temporary removal from the presence of God. Because you remember, God expels them from the garden. And he puts two cherubim at the entrance of the garden with flaming swords. So Adam and Eve and whoever else, you can't come back in here. Because the garden, when it was on earth, represented the place of God's life. And outside the garden, in the field, those two terms are used in Genesis, represents the place of death, of disobedience, of disorder. And Adam and Eve are put out of the garden because they are put out of the relational life of God and they are expelled. But you see, death is certainly an expulsion from the presence and life of God. And we see it every day. That relationship that Adam and Eve were to have with God because of their sin was ripped and torn apart. And how many of us have experienced the ripping and tearing of relationships through the death of a loved one? I don't know what the worst thing is in life other than obviously not being in a relationship with God, but in a natural, I think death is the worst thing. I think it is. It, it just is something very wrong. And it's a consequence of sin in the world. It's the antithesis of God's life, of fellowship, relationship, community, communion, communication, family. Everything that God is and has given to us and desires to give to us is destroyed and made the very opposite in death because of sin. But you see, it's more than just not having that relationship with God, that ripping. We're not only removed from the presence of God, but we're removed into the lake of fire. Revelation 5, 2015. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, that great book of God's people, if your name isn't found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You say, wow, man. <laughs> this is disturbing. I don't know why he has to be so negative. He's frightening me. I'm not being negative and I'm not frightening nobody. I've just read to you what the word of God says. You see, there are too many false teachers out there not telling you the truth. And you need to know the truth. Whoever's name is not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake 
of fire. How many of us have kids or grandkids, and when they won't obey, we use fear sometimes? If you run out in front of that truck, you're going to be a hood ornament. Why do we tell them that? Because we want them to be what, Phil? Afraid of running out in front of the truck. So part of love is fear. Why do I emphasize this? You see, I emphasize this because the most serious danger for all who do not have God's life in them is this inevitable result which necessitates the most radical solution. The most radical result of sin is the lake of fire. Do you know anything more radical than that, anybody? Yeah, I know, spending eternity with your mother-in-law. Well, maybe so, but, you know. (laughs) And so, it's the most radical thing that can happen to us. It's worse than maybe the Republicans won't get the presidency. Maybe somebody else will. It's, It's even more, can you imagine that? And as a result, it requires the most radical solution. The death of the firstborn son. Why the death of a firstborn son? Why death? We've seen why death. But why the death of the firstborn son? Why, why just can't some other kind of way? What, what about the animal? Why the firstborn son? Why that one? You see, in the death of the firstborn son, the Lord is pointing to the necessity of the death of his own son as a remedy for our sin and the breaking of Satan's tyranny over us. So when you look at Egypt, sorry, Exodus, and you see what is happening here, this is a real historical event. But the significance of it is not just that God is releasing a group of people from being encaged by another group of people. But in this historical act, God is saying something about the ultimate way that he will free all of us from our bondage to death in order to give us his own life. That's what this is. In fact, the entire Old Testament, actual events always happening. But in all of them, they are all looking for their ultimate fulfillment somewhere else, not in the pages of the Old Testament, but in the pages of the New Testament. You see, in the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, beginning with whose son? Pharaoh, beginning with your son and all the others. The Lord is pointing to the necessity of the death of his own people, his own son, for the release of, from Satan's slavery. So this is why the Lord says to Pharaoh, remember which we just quoted in Exodus 4, 23, let my son go. Now, what does he mean by my son? Who? 
Well, he means Israel. Remember, Israel is called God's son throughout the Old Testament. But you notice he doesn't say, let my sons go. He said, let my son go. Because you see, in this revelation, to Moses, my son, the people, I got it. We're, collectively, we are the son of God, collectively. But Moses doesn't understand that in God's terminology of let my son go, he is anticipating the very giving of his own son for the freedom of his people. And that's the way we need to see this event and the rest of the events in this Passover experience. You see, God had to free Israel. May I repeat that? God had to free Israel. It was obligatory according to his decree. It wasn't obligatory according to anything exterior to God, nothing within the context of the people or the culture. It was only obligatory according to God's eternal decree. God decreed something and therefore he must fulfill it. Otherwise, he is not to be trusted. He is bound by his own decrees. God had to free Israel. Why? In order that Jesus would be freed to pay the price to free us, God's people. How, how does that happen? I mean, how does it happen that he had to free Israel? Where was Jesus when Israel was in captivity? Where was this man, Jesus Christ, this incarnation of the Son of God? Where was he? When Israel, 14, 15, or whatever, 100 years before Jesus is born, before Matthew 1, 1,500 years before, where's Jesus? Where is it, this man? Where is he? How many of us can, let's see, figure it out like this. How many of us have grandparents? Anybody in here have grandparents? Okay, most of you raise your hands. Where were we when our grandparents were kids? The Bible calls it in their loins. You were in your parents before you were born. Did you get that? Do you understand? Otherwise, where'd you come from? I mean, Chris, were you in your parents or were you somewhere else? You're not an alien, are you? You didn't go we were all in our parents before we were born physically. And where were they? They were in their parents. Where were they? In their parents. And all the way back to Adam and Eve. All of us were in Adam and Eve. So where is Jesus before he's born? He's in this nation of Israel. He's in the tribe of Judah. He's there, potentially waiting to be born. And so the captivity of Israel by Pharaoh and essentially by Satan was Satan's scheme to prevent God's purpose of sending a redeemer for his people from being accomplished. I'm going to stop it right now. We're going to murder all these people, kill all these people, enslave them all. They ain't never leaving here. God will not have his way. 
Because the Messiah, you see, Satan knows these things. The Messiah is in this people, and I'm not releasing them. Do you think he cares about the Jews? You think he really cares about us? What does he really care about? The glory of the Son of God. That's his primary care. And that's what he's attacking. Jesus is there. Where were we when Jesus was crucified? Where were we when Jesus hung on the cross and suffered and died and said, it is finally over. I have paid the full price. Where were we who are in Christ today? Those of us who will say, where were we when he died 2,000 whatever years ago? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says that 40 years or so after the crucifixion. In other words, the same applies. God saw us as in his son. He decreed that we would be in his son. And he decreed that when his son died and suffered the agonies of the penalty of sin, our sin would be washed away and freed because in Christ our sins have been judged We didn't get into Christ when we were saved. We didn't get into Christ when we were born again. We have always been in the mind and the heart and by the decree of God in Christ. Therefore, we were saved. Therefore, we did get born again. Therefore, we are going to heaven because it was God's eternal decree that this would happen. Can somebody say amen louder? Yes. I'm not a saved man because I'm so great. My wife would tell you how ungreat I am. I'm not a saved man because I look for Jesus. I wasn't looking for him. He was looking for me. He came searching for me. And he came searching for you. And you and I were found by him because God decreed that we would be found by him. And you say, well, I don't like that. But if you don't like it, you want to take a chance that you would have said yes to Jesus? If you think so, you fools. There's no other way of saying it. Don't be foolish. Thank God, thank God for his sovereignty. I know there are a lot of questions about that. There's thousands of questions, but here's the answer to every question we cannot figure out about the sovereignty of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. That's the answer to all of it. You see, this is why the death of the firstborn, this is why this plague number 10 is so important to us today. This is why we study it today. Because what happened then impacts us directly today. If it hadn't happened then, we would not be here today. That plague was for us. That death was for us. That was God's grace, God's gospel in those days being performed mightily before Pharaoh to break the power and the authority of this demon over God's people. That's the gospel. You see, in telling Pharaoh to let my son go, the Lord was rescuing his own son in order to deal with our most radical need through this most radical solution. See, this is what the Lord had promised in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 2.17, you're going to die if you disobey. Genesis 3.6, and he ate, he disobeyed. Genesis 3.15, 
I'm sending the seed of the woman, a deliverer. I'm sending somebody. Why? Because you see, I decreed, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I have decreed it, and what I have decreed, I determined that it will be brought to pass. Therefore, God doesn't shuffle it under the rug. God doesn't destroy Adam and Eve and starts all over again. Who would ever know that he failed? He would know. Therefore, he doesn't do that. So the decree goes out, Adam and Eve, and your progeny will be in my likeness. Adam sinned, destroying that ability. And God says, I'm sending somebody because I'm bringing my people back. I'm bringing my people back. My people will not sink in sin. I'm bringing them back. And so Genesis 3.21, how is he going to do that? There's an intimation here. There's a foreshadowing here of how is God going to bring them back? What does this seed of the woman, what will this seed of the woman do? Well, he will certainly crush you as to your head in relation to Satan. He will crush the authority of Satan. But how will he do it, Mayo? He will do it through the shedding of blood. And so God took this Adam and Eve, these two rebellious and sinful people now who were hiding behind the asparagus bushes, and God clothed them with skins. He covered them and anytime you skin an animal what happens it what it bleeds the shedding of blood is established in Genesis 3 21 you see the 10th plague the death of the firstborn is God's decree can we make sure we get that today? These are decrees. This is not just God letting something happen. This is God making it happen. Making it happen by his power. So the death of the firstborn is God's decree that only through the death of his son would Satan's power over us be destroyed? Listen to Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children we share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He became a man. Why? You see, so that this man in whom the Son of God also dwelt in the humanity of Jesus, so that through his own death through his own death he might destroy the one destroy the authority of the one who has the power of death that is the devil <clears throat> Hebrews 2.14 see this is why the tenth plague was so necessary because Israel was dwelling in the place of death and destruction. And God's purpose for Israel and for all of his people is that we would have life. And so God is going to use the death of his own son as typified in the 10th plague, death of a lamb, in order to release us from the grip of death and give us eternal life. 
So this is why Israel had to be freed from Egypt, so that God's Son would be free to give us eternal life through his own death and his resurrection, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Remember, God is life. And this life, this eternal life, this God life is in his Son. You notice that it isn't in how I act, where you live, what church you went to, and how good you are. Did anybody notice any of those terms, any of that consideration in what I just read? And this life is in his son. That's why Jesus says, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. Whoever, who? It doesn't say just the Pentecostals. doesn't say just the Baptists. doesn't say only the Catholics. It doesn't say maybe a few Presbyterians. It, it doesn't say that. It says, whoever, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And if you don't have life, what do you have? What's the choice? Death. And what is the result of death? Everyone whose name is not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's not a pretty picture. Hopefully, this is a very sobering message for all of us. You see, because this is the most extreme thing. Why? Because the maintenance and the declaration of God's glory of his will, of his majesty, of his rule, of his sovereignty, of his grace, of all about God, is the most needful revelation of all. You see, God did what he had to do in order to do, to free his people from false sonship in order to become the true sons of God. The Bible calls everyone who is not in Christ sons of the devil, children of wrath. See, some people teach, well, everybody is a child of God. Certainly Satan wants you to think that. Of course. It's okay. It's okay. God's not that radical. Don't believe it. Either that's true and the Bible's lying, or the Bible is true and that's a lie. God is the creator of all living, but he is the father, the one who gives his own life to his own children, to those who are in Christ. This is why the firstborn must die in order to reveal this, in order to release Israel, in order to bring Jesus, in order that we could be saved even today. Well, the, prophets, the plagues not only deal with the issue in Israel at that time, and they not only tell us, especially the 10th plague, the necessity of death in order to bring life. Hopefully you see that today. Hopefully we see when we look at this, we have a better understanding. Ah, this is what really is happening behind the scenes. These plagues are also a prophecy. A prophecy. You see, the plagues did not end in Egypt. 
all of this is coming back upon mankind. Huh. I thought that when God dealt with that, it's over. We're, we're pretty clear of these things. It's all coming back. You see, because it is a precursor of the final warfare and conflagration that will occur upon the earth. When God will not just break Satan's authority, but will also throw Satan himself into the lake of fire. Now, I have already bought my ticket to be on the front row. I don't know where you're going to be, but I'm on the front row. And if you're sitting next to me, hold your ears. Because you ain't ever heard a loud mouth before. When I see that slippery, slimy serpent finally destroyed from our presence forever. You see, that day is coming. How do I know it? Because Jesus' resurrection proves it and ensures it forever. You see, the plagues of Egypt also serve as a prophetic sign to tell us that God will once again bring judgment against this Egypt, which we call the world, and this Pharaoh, which 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls the God of this world. They're coming back. Because what God did then, he did to free us. This time, he will do it in order to chain Satan. You see, he did not chain Satan then. Satan's still prowling about. Remember 1 Peter 5, 8? Be sober-minded. Why? Because your adversary, word adversary in the, in the Hebrew, the word adversary is Satan, S-A-T-A-N. Because your adversary, what? As a roaring lion does what? Prowls about seeking whom he may devour. You see? Gotcha. Listen to what the Scripture says about what's coming. Listen to this. Revelation 11, 3 through 6. Two witnesses will appear. Who appeared before Pharaoh? Moses and Aaron. The two witnesses are coming back. I didn't say they're saying two witnesses. I said two witnesses. We know they're not, Aaron's not there, but who will have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. You see, what you see in these chapters 7 through 12 is coming back. This is a prophetic statement. What I'm doing in Exodus in a limited way, I'm going to bring fruition in the most horrific way that you can imagine. This is the God of glory, the God of grace, the God of goodness, the God of mercy. How can it be the God of love? I maintain this and you will too. If you find out that one of your relatives, your mama, your daddy, your husband, your wife, your child, your grandchild has cancer, 
What is your attitude about the cancer? Will, oh, okay, we can live through that. But, you know, we'll be okay, you know. Don't be too radical, right? You know, take it easy, chill out, it's okay. You'll be all right. Ignore it, it'll go away. Maybe it won't hurt you. What's your attitude about it? Is it a passive attitude? Would anyone have a passive attitude in here if one of your loved ones was stricken with cancer? Raise your hand if you'd have a passive attitude. How many of you would be boiling, hot, raging, angry, and hating it? Why? Because we should be boiling, hot, loving that person. And because of our great love, the passion of our love, that turns into a passion of hatred and antagonism against that which could bring death to our loved one. So don't you sit here and tell me that God would not do this because he is a God of love. If he does not do this, he is not a God of love. If he does not judge sin, he is no God of love. Don't let the doo-doos of this world tell you differently. This is our God. Aren't you glad that he has such a passion for us? That he moves heaven and earth and breaks all the power of the enemy in order to save us and to keep us until that great day when we stand before his throne. Thank God for his passionate, holding, powerful love and his anger and wrath against sin. Revelation 13, 13 to 15. God's enemy will have power to perform miracles that mimic God's miracles. Remember? Throw down your stick. Boom. Ooh, look at that. Hey, throw down these sticks. Boom. Look at all these snakes on the ground. You see, for the first, how many was it? Three or four? You, you said last week, I can't remember. Three or four miracles. The, the magicians mimicked them. That's going to happen in the latter days. The days that I think we're in those latter days. Be looking for this. What kind of plagues? Revelation 8, 8, water will be turned to blood. Hmm. 16, 13, frogs. 9, 2 through 11, locusts. 16, 2, boils. 8, 7, hailstorms. 16, 10, darkness. 9, 20, hardness of heart. Finally, Revelation 20, 14 to 15, the final plague that comprehensively gathers up all the other plagues and brings them together in death. That's happening. These are the plagues that are coming. You see, as surely as God judged Pharaoh in Egypt, he will once again judge the God of this world and those who have not bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're sitting here this morning and you realize you have never made a commitment to surrender your heart to the love of God in Jesus Christ to receive his forgiveness. This is your future. There is no way out. Listen to these two scriptures about the judgment. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 6, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Anybody hear anything about a war? See that you are not alarmed. 
All of this must take place, but the end isn't yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. I don't know, maybe we're not there, but if we're not there, I think we're, well, I know we're getting closer. Why? Because you see, today, you're 24 hours closer to this than you were yesterday. We're ever moving forward toward this ultimate judgment of the world. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 3.1. But understand this, that in the last days, those days when the judgment of God will fall upon the earth, there will come times of difficulty. Hmm. For people will be lovers of self. You wonder what's going on in same-sex marriages. Okay. All right. Lovers of money. Okay. Don't trust God in giving and so on. Okay. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal and not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness by denying His power. Then he says, avoid such people. Avoid them. What's the final result of the plagues? What's the final thing? Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. You see, that's where God is going with this plague in Egypt, and that's where God is going in these final plagues. He's putting everything that is of death away so that everything that is of life may remain and glorify his name. You see, for those whose names are written in the Lord's book of life, which I just quoted, eternal life with God and for those whose names are not written, eternal judgment. It says nothing about your social, religious, ethnic, racial anything background it simply says are you trusting Christ Revelation 3 5 for the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life the one who conquers the one who says yes to Christ the one who walks with Christ through this world obediently trusting and obeying Revelation 20, 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, and I've already read this, will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is sobering news. It should sober us. You see, this should be a great comfort for us who are in Christ, but a great sobering for those of you who are not. So what's the remedy? What should we do? But we'll find out next week what we should do when Keith presents chapter 12. But as a precursor to that, the Lord required, if you're going to not suffer the death penalty, 
there has to be the shedding of blood and it has to be your protective covering you see Jesus died the Son of God died on the cross for this purpose that he would destroy the works of the devil by paying the price we deserve for our sin so that in his death God could justly declare us as not guilty in his resurrection Romans 4.25 The penalty has been paid. The blood has been shed. Now what God is doing today is revealing to some of you this is the day I am bringing you in to this covering. If that's where you are in your heart, you're feeling that, I need to say yes. I've never understood this. I always thought it was maybe something here, there, a balance is a good, a bad, a church, a background, a mom and them. The question is, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, will be saved. Calling upon him by faith, knowing he is the son of God, he has paid for my sin, he has died, God has put it all to death as far as the penalty is concerned, and he's raised him up to give us eternal life. Have you ever said yes? Or are you depending upon something else? And if you are, the guarantee is the death sentence. Because Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. You see, Jesus has died to forgive your sin. The final plague, number 10, the clarion call, the great announcement that the final number 10 plague, the death of the firstborn, was the call of Jesus in John 19.30. It is finalized. The 10th plague has been paid. Now the door of heaven is open to my people. Let's stand together. Typically in a congregation of this size, there are some who have never had maybe the understanding and revelation and have never made the connection between the necessity of the death of the firstborn in order to have death's sentence over you commuted because Jesus paid death for us on our behalf. And if you've been realizing that today and you are worried and afraid and concerned that your name is not written in the book of life, or if you're not sure, the book will be open and God will read the names. And as he reads the names, you will come into life. And if he's going down the alphabet and your name is coming up and boom, you don't hear your name, you're going into judgment. But today, you see, is the day that you can respond to declare, my name is written in God's book of life. Let's bow our heads together.
if this is who you are, I'm going to ask you to do something brave but radical. Why radical? Because you see, your need is so radical. That's why. I'm going to ask you just to come down here and stand in the front, and Pastor Jason will be here to pray with you. You're not joining the church. You're not giving money. You're simply acknowledging that today you have understood and are receiving and obeying God's call for you to be written, no name, to be written in the book of life. So I'm going to wait a moment. Let the Holy Spirit minister to you. If you feel that tug, if you feel that feeling, if you have that anxiousness, if you're not sure, today is God's day for you. Don't leave here thinking, oh, it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. The people in that Bible study did never realize that that was their last day and a demon had come in among them. We don't know when our last day is. There may be no one here like this, but there may be. If you're here feeling that, experiencing that, let me give you another moment to come on down. I came down one day, everybody in this room has made a decision, those of you in Christ. So you're among people who care about you and who love you. Or you're here as a visitor and you've not heard this before, this clearly. Could this be the day I would say yes? Anyone at all before we close? If you're wrestling, you're wrestling against an enemy who does not want you to come. And Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and my yoke is light. Come home. Come home today, anyone at all. so much. Let's close this, brother. What heart could hold the weight of your love and know the heights of your great worth what eyes could look on your glorious face shining like the sun you are holy 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 god most high in god most worthy you are Your name alone has power to serve us. Your light will shine when all else fades. 
Price, Lord, so that we could experience your mercy, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 